Welcome to the Marathon Running Podcast. We're going to be talking about marathon training, racing, physiology. Uh, we're going to be getting stories and expert analysis. Uh, today, my je- uh, guest is Jeff Milliman, owner of the Greenville Running Company here in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, Jeff is a seven-time NCAA All-American, two-time NCAA National Champion, He's the Georgia State record holder in the marathon. He has coached two NCAA national champions. Um, He's the member of the North Central College Athletic Hall of Fame. He is a recipient of the Runner's World Golden Shoe Award. He's also a U.S. patent holder in running shoe cushioning technology. Uh, Jeff, thanks for being here. Welcome to the show. I appreciate it, Joe. Thank you for having me. Uh, Jeff, before we get into real technical discussion here, um, I wanted to have you take a few minutes and tell the audience who you are. Maybe you could, uh, go through where you were born, where you're from, you know, where you grew up as a child, how you got into running and then run us through the highlights of your running career and also how you got into retail and maybe the high points of your, uh, retail career, how you ended up in Greenville coaching experience, whatever you want to add on to that. And then we'll come back and get in deeper into your marathon experience specifically, but maybe if you just give us an overview to start. Okay. Well, I'm old, so it's going to take a long time. <laughs> no, but a- anyway, I'm from upstate New York near the Adirondack Mountains. And <clears throat> when I was a kid, it wasn't like today where, say, your mom wants to take you to a friend's house. You got there on your own. And so running or walking or bicycling was just something that we normally did. Now, of course, I played all the other sports that kids play at the time, you know, baseball, football, basketball, and so on. But starting, say, in fourth grade, I got tired of riding the bus home. And so actually, it was about three and a half miles. I would race the bus home, and that kind of started me running. And then later on in middle school, um, I actually got on the track team um, and started, you know, racing, uh, you know, I guess you'd say uh, seriously. But interesting enough, my coach didn't know anything about me, and I didn't know anything about really about events, and he put me in the 330-yard dash. Well, I don't have raw speed, and I got my butt pretty much handed to me in the 330, so I begged the coach to move me to the 660, and when the first time I ran the 660, I won, and so that kind of started me realizing, oh, I've got a little talent here, and then I progressed from middle school to high school and so on. And in high school, I ran cross country, uh, the two mile and the one mile and the half mile in track. Uh, and then my, our basketball coach in high school uh, actually was from Illinois. And he had gone to high school with a, a friend of his that had a program. He was a fairly new coach in the Chicago area. Um, and he asked, hey, you mind if I have my buddy call you? He's got a running program up in Chicago. And, you know, he, you might be interested in going to school there. And I was like, well, you know, there's no way I'm going to Chicago to go to college, but sure, I'd love to talk to the guy. Well, he calls me. His name was Al Carius. Al calls me and talks to me about my running and so on. And uh, what's really kind of funny is my brother had told me, he said, listen, when colleges start calling you, uh, go ahead and tell them that you're going to go to the school that offers you the most money. What's really funny is Al Carius doesn't offer athletic scholarships. And he said, I'm sorry, but at North Central College, we can't offer you any 
scholarship money, but we can definitely offer you a special kind of education that you'll appreciate the rest of your life. And after about 45 minutes of talking on the phone with Mr. Carius, I thought, wow, that's a guy I'd love to run for. So anyway, packed up my suitcase, got on a bus, and went to Chicago and ended up going to college in Chicago. Okay. And then, uh, like I said, we'll go back and get into how you got into any sort of uh, type of marathon running, but um, can you kind of go on from there and tell us a little bit about your college running career and then what kind of post-collegiate running career you had um, and then where the retail work started and then, um, because you've basically been in retail most of your professional career, is that right? That's correct. So maybe start with uh, your college career, post-collegiate running career, and then... um, uh, kind of the bullet high points of your uh, retail career, too. Okay. Uh, actually, I'll back up just a little bit to, um, to junior high school and high school. When I was, <clears throat> when I was growing up, um, they didn't, road races weren't common like they were today. But I was running track, and one of my teachers in middle school mentioned road racing. And I didn't know what that was, but he said, there's a road race in Rome, New York. And he said, uh, you know, I've heard about this, and I think you might be good at it. Well, it was a 20K road race. I'm in seventh grade. 20K is 12 and a half miles. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty far since the longest I've raced is a half a mile. But anyway, um, so I went home and told my dad about it, and he said, listen, if you can run that far, I'll take you to the race. So the race was in August. So when school was out that year, every day I ran 12 and a half miles so, <laughs> to prove by myself that I could run 12 and a half miles. So I went to the race. By then, I was very tired. I finished the race, but I didn't run really well. But that kind of set a goal in my mind that I'm not going to get, I'm not going to run poorly in a road race anymore. I'm going to do the best I can. So I ran track, I ran cross country, but in the back of my mind, what I really wanted to do was do better at the longer distances. And so I trained really heavy miles in high school, more heavier miles than most people would. Like it was not unusual for me to run 120 miles a week in high school. Now, most people will say, oh, that's crazy. You know, you'll get hurt. Shockingly, I really never did get hurt. And in fact, my junior year in high school, uh, I ran the fastest time in the U.S. for anybody under 19 in the half marathon. Um, So anyway, that kind of prompted, you know, coaches to start calling me and so on. And I got second in the state meet in the two mile, uh, my junior and senior years in in, 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 uh, state meet. So anyway, that prompted coaches to start calling me. So I found out that once I got to college, with that heavy miles behind me, and most of the kids that I was that were also freshmen had not done that kind of mileage. I really excelled at running the longer distances of collegiate cross country, where some other kids had to work, you know, work into it a little harder. And so, North Central College has uh, a strong, very strong history in cross country. In fact, uh, most people consider North Central College to be the most enduringly successful collegiate program in the nation. Well, I was able to come in as a freshman. And actually able to be able to run number one on the team that year, uh, which got me, you know, got me some good situations. And I was able to go run the, uh, the trials to make the international American team to travel to the world championships my freshman year in college, which I did. And I did qualify for and I was able to compete in the world championships um, as a freshman in college. Uh, and, of course, then we also had NCAA competition. Um, and so my freshman year in, uh, in cross country, I was able to make all American. Um, and then my, uh, sophomore year, I was actually able to, even though I sustained a serious injury, not related to running and had to run with a back brace 
uh, most of the year. I was able to actually get third my sophomore year in cross country at the NCAAs um, and, you know, kind of built on after that. And finally, my senior year, I was able to win the national cross country championship in both the 10,000 meter in track and um, in cross country. Awesome. Okay, so you have a great college running career. Uh, what, when you were in college, were you planning on doing once you graduated? Well, you know, this was 40 years ago, and times were a lot different. Um, it's not like today. Where, well, first of all, there was no money in running. If you accepted any prize money uh, for running a race or any sponsorship, actually, any sponsorship money, uh, you could actually be banned from the sport. So there really was no uh, career to be made in running. Now, yes, did, after college, did a lot of us still compete? Sure, we did. And we raced very seriously. But we also had to have full-time jobs. And what I did is I went to work for Jimmy Carnes and Marty LaCorey, who started a chain called Athletic Attic. It was the first running store chain in the U.S. And so, it, although it sounds like a really good gig to do if you want to be a runner and, and uh, manage running stores, but actually, you work about 60 to 70 hours a week, sometimes more. So after college, yes, I still competed, but I could not really train quite at the level I used to in college. But I, but I did have some success after college. I was able to, uh, like Joe mentioned, I was able to set the state record in Georgia in the marathon. Uh, I was able to set the state record actually in the 5K, the 8K, and the 10K as well. But um, it, it wasn't quite the same as when I was in college because... That meant my morning runs were at 5 in the morning, and my evening runs were sometimes at 9 o'clock at night. So how did you end up here in South Carolina? Well, when I worked for Athletic Attic, <clears throat> I worked all over the country. Wherever Jimmy and Marty would send me, um, I would you know, be willing to take a store and you know, see what I could do to make it better. Uh, and I built a lot of stores, uh, not necessarily all over the nation, but in a lot of places. And I would travel through South Carolina, and I would say, wow. That is a great place. It's kind of the best of all worlds. So later on, when I got a chance to be in a better position, I was able to buy the athletic attic in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, and then I was able to uh, make a move and actually uh, come to Greenville and open a running store in Greenville back in the early 90s. Very cool. All right. Um, that's great. Let me take a, a step back here and and say something about what this podcast is uh, intended to be. And I want to set up kind of the premise of why to even talk about exclusively marathons. Um, I want to lay out the way I understand what's unique about the marathon and then get your reaction. So the way I see it is if you lay out all the running events – um, and put them on a spectrum from shortest being like 800 meters all the way up to ultra marathons. Um, it seems like you could basically draw a line and divide all the distance into two categories. And the categories would be number one, you have shorter, shorter distances that people are more generally concerned about their time in racing. And, also, that category, fueling is not really an issue. For example, if you want to run a 10,000 meters or a half marathon, it's not physically necessary to refuel during uh, one of those events. Whereas 
ultra marathons, you you literally can't store enough carbohydrates in your body to complete one of those. So you have to constantly feed yourself during the event. So you have these two categories. And, and also on the longer end of the spectrum, you know, these ultra marathon kind of endurance survival events, it seems like in general, and, and again, obviously there's exceptions. There's elite athletes running these ultra marathons and not trying to minimize what they do, but just generally speaking, in the longer events further than marathon distance, people aren't necessarily as concerned about their finishing time as they are just completing the event, kind of having the experience. Um, so I'm kind of being really broad and making these two categories, the shorter, more time-focused, and the longer, less time-focused, and where you basically have to feed yourself during the event. And the reason I say the marathon is unique is – I think that line you would draw to divide would basically sit on the marathon. Like the marathon kind of straddles these two categories because it's the longest Olympic distance event. And it's, but uh, people are still concerned about their time more so than these ultras. And um, so you have people wanting to run the marathon faster than they have before. And this goes for, Amateurs, beginners, world class, anybody is kind of, you know, conscious and wanting to improve on their marathon time. So, but at the same time, it's kind of the first distance you get to on the spectrum where the fueling becomes an issue because uh, generally speaking, most people cannot store enough glycogen or carbohydrate energy in their body to complete a marathon, no matter how fast you run it, which is another interesting thing that no matter the distance, um, no matter how fast you run any distance, it's going to take roughly the same number of calories to complete the distance, no matter how fast you're going. Um, so the way I see it is what makes the marathon unique is that it's people want to run it fast and there's this fueling component, an extra dimension added to it, which is unique to it versus shorter events. And uh, I'd like to get your reaction to number one. Do you agree that the marathon is unique for these reasons? Do you also agree that the whole fueling dimension is the biggest challenge in trying to complete a marathon? Yeah, you nailed it. That's exactly <clears> – <throat> the marathon is a completely unique event. It used to be that people did not run marathons until they were experienced at the shorter distances. When you had accomplished a lot of goals at, say, the 5,000, the 10,000, the shorter distances, as you got a little older and you, you gained a little bit of wisdom and experience, you might want to experiment with the marathon. But what we've seen happen is that, and I'm guilty of this, um, I coached team and training for years, which takes beginning runners and coaches them to run a marathon in honor of um, someone they know that have been afflicted by, uh, uh, say, lymphoma or leukemia, which is a great a great cause. But what it had, had what it did is, team and training was the first program of that kind, and it got the average person thinking that a marathon was an end all. Like completing a five k or ten k or a shorter distance was not as much of an accomplishment as running a marathon. Whereas when I grew up, actually, the, the, the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the great event was the mile. 
And in other words, it was when you said to somebody, uh, they asked you if you were a runner, you said, oh, yeah, I'm a runner. Oh, how fast do you run the mile? Well, nowadays, if somebody asks you about being a runner, the first thing they ask you is, oh, how many marathons have you run? It's not about how fast you've run the marathon. It's how many have you done. And it's, nobody ever asks you how fast you can run the mile anymore. Kind of a different thing going on. But that said, what it, so in my era, in my age group, um, we didn't run marathons until we were experienced at shorter distances. But what Joe just said, we didn't realize that we should take in fluids. We didn't realize we should take in foods or gels or energy gels, anything like that. Uh, my first marathon, for example, I was trying to qualify for Olympic trials um, in 1979, and I had run uh, three cross-country races the previous week, didn't realize that you should be rested for a marathon, jumped into the marathon. We didn't, I didn't know to drink. Um, I simply took water and doused it over my neck to cool me off. So I didn't drink and I didn't take any foods. All right. <clears throat> so I'm running along. I'm running great. Actually running with my brother at the, we didn't have watch stopwatches at that time that we could run with. It would tell us our splits. So I had written down the splits on my arm and we'd go by the mile markers and we'd look at the times. And anyway, at 10 miles into the race, I said, oh, we're going way too slow, Dave. We need to, I need to pick this up. And he said, no, no, no. He was, you know, he had some experience and he said, no, you need to slow it down. You need to pace yourself. You know, you'll see, you'll see later on. Well, I didn't listen to him. I took off. <clears throat> and at around 22 miles, um, I started losing my, my uh, peripheral vision. Everything started turning black and white. Um, as they say, I hit the proverbial wall. All right, I made it to the finish, but very slowly in the last few miles. What I, what I, after the race, I thought, well, I didn't realize that I wasn't that fit. I thought I was quite fit. What, what I realized now, and realized shortly thereafter, it was not a matter of being fit. It was a better matter of nutrition. Of course, also a matter of pacing. I should have listened to Brother Dave. But later on, as I know, knew more about this, like two years later, uh, in the middle of track training, uh, my roommate, Dan Scarta, says to me, hey, there's a marathon tomorrow morning. Uh, what we could do is maybe we could run the first 20 miles of the marathon for our long run. We could get our splits. And, you know, they have these aid stations out, and we could get fluids, maybe even some Gatorade. And I said, drinking? during? Why would you drink during a marathon? So anyway, so we did that. We went to the marathon. We ran uh, the first 10 miles. We were getting our splits. We were getting some Gatorade. And uh, he turns to me and he says, hey, listen, you know, I, I really don't want to run that far today. I'm going to run, I'm going to pick it up and run only 13 miles. So it, we picked it up, and we took the lead of the race. Um, at, thir at 13 miles. And then I said, well, geez, I'm behind the press truck. I don't want to drop out. This is embarrassing, you know, be embarrassing for the race director and so on. So I went ahead, stopped at the aid stations, got fluids, finished the race, felt great, didn't hit the wall as I did before, and it was an epiphany for me. I was like, wow, how was that possible that I could feel so good when I was actually probably not as fit as I was at the previous marathon? Well, what I learned was... <clears throat> The Gatorade that I was drinking was probably giving me maybe 60 calories, maybe 80, 80 calories for every time I'd stop at an aid station. Well, we now know that in a marathon, <clears throat> the human body can only seem to store glycogen in the muscles and the liver long enough to exercise for about two hours for, for most people. Now, you know, of course, there's going to be differences there. But what I was doing, if, if let's say I might have taken in over the period of the race, I might have taken in. 300, 400 calories, we now know that about 100 calories a mile is fairly normal. 
I staved off the wall till after the race was over, if, if, if you follow what I'm saying. So I never hit the wall that day, felt great, and I had to actually run our conference meet uh, starting that Thursday four days later. And I actually was able to do that. And it was like, uh, it just made me realize, wow, this whole time I thought it was a matter of fitness, but it's really a matter of hydration and, and getting calories in because your body can't store that much glycogen. But obviously, you have to be fit to run, you know, the pace you're oh, yeah. So, I yeah. mean, the fitness yeah. has to be there. It's just kind of uh, – so both pieces have to be there, the fitness and the nutrition. Um, and it's kind of like you can't – you you know, it's not like you can only have one. You really have to have them both, right? It, exactly. In fact, at the time that I ran that marathon, I was training for the 10,000 meter in track. I had – previously won the national championships in cross country and I was getting ready to try to actually win the 5,000 meters and the 10,000 meters at the track championships, which were two weeks later after this marathon. So I wasn't specifically training for the marathon, but I was doing heavy mileage for the 5k and the 10k. But one thing I was doing was learning how to run efficiently at faster paces. Mm -hmm. So as Joe said, the efficiency that I had learned running the faster paces made running 20 seconds a mile slower to run a marathon feel very easy. Hmm. So, Jeff, do you know how many marathons you've run? Well, that's a question I get a lot. <laughs> as far as how many I've run competitively at in a you know in a peak time of my life, probably twenty, somewhere around twenty. But as far as later on, as I got slower and I would just I would still run marathons competitively, but I wasn't as good as I once was. Probably about sixty. Okay. Um, so you kind of told us there the story of your first marathon. Can you kind of give us an overview of what your most competitive marathon uh, years were like? Was that working for an athletic addict or was some of that during college? And, and kind of what were some of the highlights and maybe touch on when you set this Georgia state record to? Okay. Yes. So my, my story is a little different than a lot of people because after college, my my uh, my focus was really on helping other runners more than myself. Uh, so I was coaching, I was working in a store, you know, trying to help other runners. But of course, I was still training seriously. Um, in college, that marathon I just mentioned that we happened to run into the night or the weekend before the uh, the conference championship. I was training for the five k and the ten k, but I was still fit enough to run a marathon. So I did set the North, the North Central College marathon record, actually, which still stands today. It's 40 years old. Um, later on, I also ran other marathons and ran well. Um, but when I was in Macon, Georgia, uh, I, had, I was a district manager for Athletic Attic, and I was responsible for several stores. And there was a marathon in Macon, and I happened to live in Macon, and I had a store in Macon. And it started at 7 o'clock in the morning. And so I said, well, you know, I can run the marathon, and then I can get back and open my store by 10 o'clock at the mall. So I did that, and that day, uh, again, being just uh, very fit, but uh, you know, not particularly competitive, I was actually able to run 221.05 and set the Georgia record in the marathon. Uh, so a minute ago, you mentioned uh, hitting the wall, which most people who have tried to run a marathon or even heard about it kind of knows what that means, and we sort of explained it. Literally, it's just your body running out of glycogen. Uh, can you describe 
how, in your experience, that usually presents itself? Is it usually just a sudden drop in energy level? Or is it muscle cramping? How does that usually look? That is a fantastic question. Because here's what, here's what my experience with that has been. And I've, I've done it several times, even though I should have known better. I actually probably, when, when they invented watches... I mean, it's hard. When I say stuff like this, I think it's no, it's hard for people to follow. You have your Garmin watch that tells you your pace every moment that you're running. But we didn't used to have that. But when they invented these watches that would actually do your splits and tell you not only your overall time, but your split from mile to mile. I was, I was running the Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. Here's a good example of hitting the wall. So I'm, I'm running along, running pretty well, running at the pace I anticipated. But wasn't probably taking in enough fluids, wasn't taking in, we again, at that point, I were not still not taking in uh, energy gels or anything like that. We didn't do that yet. But as I'm running along, uh, I'm looking at my splits. They're doing very well. But about 21 miles, I start shaking my watch because I can't figure out what's going on with my watch. I'm running just as hard, but I was like 30 seconds a mile slower. And then the next mile was, you know, 45 seconds slower. But I feel like I'm running just as hard. The next mile is a minute slower. The next mile is a minute and a half slower. That's generally how it presents itself. You get a little slower, a little slower, a little slower until your mind says, yes, I want to do this. And no matter how hard you try, your body won't. Uh, uh, Kind of a funny uh, anecdote here is I was running the Kiowa Island Marathon one time and uh, the same thing had happened to me. And, you know, I'm trying very hard and very competitive. And uh, after I finished the race, uh, one of the spectators says to me, he says, wow, you looked like you were working so hard, but, you know, you really weren't going that fast. (laughs) Anyway, that's generally how the wall presents itself. It isn't necessarily an immediate feeling. You just start to think you're running just as hard, but you're running out of gas. It's like an engine just running lower and lower on fuel. Mm. Now, occasionally, uh, I, I do a lot of coaching, and I'll have athletes that'll be running along just fine, and sometimes it'll just happen at once. But in general, if you're really cognizant of what's going on inside your body, if you're really in touch, you can start to feel it happening happening fairly slowly. And if you're smart, at that point, you'll say, oh, let me slow down, let me get some fluids, let me get some energy gels. If you do that, you can stave off the wall if you're smart. If you try to muscle through it, it generally just gets worse and worse. Okay, so I hear the term a lot banking time early in a marathon or, or stashing away time, kind of like trying to run a little faster than you, uh, you know, faster than you need to early in the race, but while you're still feeling good so that when you do hit the wall, you'll have some time cushion if you're trying to hit a certain mark or something like that. And then knowing you are going to slow down, but you've, you've kind of already made for made up for it in the beginning of the race is what do you think about that? I hear that a lot. I hear that a lot. And actually, I'm completely the opposite of that. Now, you want to run a, you want to run fast enough that you're not out there longer than you should be. But you don't really want to bank time. I mean, this is kind of hard to it, that makes sense. It makes complete sense. You know, like, wow, yeah, if I'm going to hit the wall, let me be a couple of minutes ahead of my goal. But if you run a little bit too fast, here's my experience. If you're trying to run, let's just take even numbers. You're trying to run seven minutes per mile in a marathon. And the first, you say, let me put a little time in the bank. Let me run 650 pace for the first 10. And then, you know, have some time in the bank. Well, you'll be surprised 
that that 10 seconds per mile, if you truly are in seven minute fitness shape, may end up being a minute per mile slower at the end. So the 10 seconds that you gained could be a 50 second deficit at the end. Mm -hmm. It isn't worth it. The best way to run a marathon is absolutely even pace. Now people will say, oh, I want to run a pace, I want to run a marathon negative splits where you run the second half faster. That's great, but most people can't do that. And that's a matter of both fitness and, 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 and nutrition. But I will tell you this, my best marathon I ever ran, <clears throat> again, I was very relaxed, just run along at even pace. Uh, shockingly, every mile until the last three miles were within two to three, four seconds of each other. Even though it was actually a hilly course, I don't know how that happened. But my last 5K of that race was actually faster than a 5K I had raced two weeks before. In other words, I, I felt so good that I was actually able to hammer later in the race. Part of that was because I didn't put any pressure on myself, um, and I was able to do it. But I got to tell you, it, again, those are the little experiences you have that say, wow, I never tried that before, but I went out easy enough that I felt fantastic at the end. You know, and after the race, I wasn't, I wasn't fried. In fact, coincidentally, that race, I had to rush back to open my store, and I worked for 12 hours that day on the sales floor, and I could do it. Where normally, you know, if you finish a marathon, you can't move. <laughs> All right, so, so far, uh, I've picked up a theme here and there about kind of what things that were different in your running prime versus today. Can you talk a little bit about general marathon trends and like kind of generational differences? Like what was the, what was the marathon culture like, you know, in the 70s and 80s? Because I think, and I don't have these statistics in front of me, it seems like today probably you have vastly more participants in marathons but probably the average time for people who are completing marathons is probably slower than it was back then. What can you talk about the difference? Yeah, there's a couple things going on there. One is that generally you didn't run a marathon until you were accomplished at other distances. Mm -hmm. um, so the average finishing time today in a marathon is about an hour slow. I mean, the the average for the the crowd is uh, ever uh, over an hour slower than it was say 30 years ago. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Part of it is that people are running marathons because they're, they want to accomplish something and it's not a matter of time. I mean, that's part of it. Um, the, other, the other part is, I mentioned earlier that we used to believe in, in high mileage. Now, maybe we, in, in all the years I've been around the game, maybe we didn't need to do quite that high mileage that we were doing. But with the high mileage we were doing, uh, even training for 5Ks and 10Ks would translate into... Uh, good marathon training. Um, as the greatest, probably the greatest distance coach in the world of all time is a guy named Arthur Lydiard. He was out of New Zealand. And he, I would consider the godfather of modern uh, training theory. And Arthur was the one that came up with the idea of long runs, tempo runs, uh, speed work, hill work, putting that all together. Uh, the pyramid concept of you can only get so high a peak if you build the base big enough. Um, <clears throat> but Arthur... Arthur um, was a big proponent of saying, if you train well for a 5K and a 10K, you can also run a decent marathon. But right now what we have happening is people are running, and this, again, this is not negative. I'm glad that more people are running. But I think what we're seeing is people are running marathons for completion rather than times, and the people that are running for times have really read a lot of information that if you 
train a lot of mileage, you're bound to get hurt. Um, and if you get hurt, of course, that puts everything out of whack. Well, that isn't necessarily true. If you're a thinker and you, you train correctly, and you really can't grab a schedule, say, off the Internet and say, oh, this worked for so-and-so, so I'm going to do this as well. There's a lot of tweaking that goes in here. Uh, bad training and good training can look exactly the same on paper. It's just a matter of how your body responds. Like if you do a hard workout on Tuesday and your body recovers well, then maybe Thursday you can do another hard workout. But if your body doesn't recover and you, and you see on paper you're supposed to do a certain workout on Thursday, but your body's not ready for it, that's bad training. You, you, you really shouldn't do that. And what we have happening now is, there's again, this is not meant to be negative, but there's so much information out there uh, from so many different sources that people look at information on the Internet and say, well, this person ran great off of this, and I know these people did this, so I'm going to do that. Well, we used to actually have coaches, uh, personal coaches or your collegiate coach or whatever, or you learn to coach yourself and you learn to read your body. And I'm not saying we don't know how to read our bodies nowadays, but that was really critical. If you were told to do a, uh, or if your schedule told you to do a 10-mile run on a Thursday, for instance, and something was bothering you, and you had a coach that said, oh, no, we can't do that. Um, but if you don't have a coach to tell you that, and you do it, that might be detrimental. So I don't know if I kind of went around Robin Hood's barn here, but um, what we've got going on now is there's obviously a certain segment of the running community that is running very well, running very fast, uh, but there's also a certain segment that sometimes doesn't hit their goals, I think because there's a little confusion out there. You hear, you know, some people say, oh, you don't need to run that many miles. You can, you can do it on less miles. You can do this. You can do that. Well, there's certain, as I call it as we learn from math, certain what I call givens. There are certain givens for people of... <laughs> Guys that have been around the game as long as I have, which is more than half a century, we realize there are certain givens that you have to do. And if you don't do those, you're probably going to have a hard time accomplishing your goals. It might happen, but you may have a harder time doing it. Um, one thing that uh, we, you know, I've seen a lot of is people talk about, well, how long does a long run need to be? And I've seen everything from people saying, well, you don't really need to worry about long runs that much, just overall mileage. And then other people say, oh, you don't need to worry about overall mileage, just your long runs. Well, as everything else, there's a, there's, a, there's a happy medium. You have to have some overall mileage. You have to have some good long runs. You have to know what to do in your long runs. Like, for instance, you know, some people just run, say, a, a long run and just run the whole thing easy. Well, that's fine. And then some people do their long runs where some of it's easy, some of it's at a tempo run. But one thing we definitely need to do if you want to run a good marathon is you need to, in your long run, occasionally run at marathon pace. Now, I'm not saying that you run your whole long run at marathon pace. But let's say you're running a 20-miler, and your goal is, say, a three-hour marathon, which is, um, uh, what is three hours? Is, is that 650? Yeah, it's about Okay, right. so 650. All right, so if you want to run a, a, a three-hour marathon or break a three-hour marathon, you can run 650 pace. Well, that doesn't mean you run your whole 20-miler at 650 pace, but it does mean you've got to run 650 pace in that long run sometimes. Not every long run. But in that long run, for instance, what I would suggest for some people is to run the first five miles fairly easy, uh, maybe eight-minute pace. Then run the middle ten miles at 650, and maybe the last five miles at eight-minute pace. Because this is something that a lot of people don't grasp. You have to learn to run the pace that is your goal. If you don't know how to run it, you always run faster, you always run slower, 
to be able to run your goal pace is a difficult thing. I tell people that I coach, I want you to be able to close your eyes, not look at a watch, and be able to run goal pace. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about goal pace uh, for marathon. Um, you know, something I've heard said is that, and this has to do with, um, you know, trying not to run out of glycogen during a race. Um, so there's this kind of scientific principle that the higher the intensity of the exercise, the higher proportion or the, the higher the percentage of carbs you're using for fuel during that exercise, where the lower the intensity is, you're using a higher percentage of fat, where you're, you're always using some combination, but the, the ratio changes depending on the intensity. So higher intensity, more carbs, lower intensity, higher uh, percentage of fat. So if the goal is to not run out of carbs during the race not run out of glycogen, um, basically that means your, your, the mar- your marathon pace needs to relatively be less intense. You're, you need to make it feel less intense so that you're not, you know, obviously you go out and start sprinting and until you can't anymore, you're going to run out of fuel. So in that sense, why not just focus on you know, 5K, 10K, half marathon pace and training so that when you go to run the marathon, it feels a lot easier and you're using fewer carbs? That's a good question. Um, that's true. <clears throat> if you, it depends on what your, what your goal is. And, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of thought process is that your goal marathon um, should be, you know, uh, considerably slower than your, uh, say, 10K pace. And if that's, if that's the case, then you're right. You can run slower and burn less carbs and um, burn, you know, have more fat metabolism going on, and you can run longer and longer and longer. But if your goal is, like, um, I would say, like, uh, example, when I was running, uh, say, a 520 pace for a marathon, uh, my... My 10K at that time might have been, say, 450 pace. Okay, well, that's a 30-second difference. Now, that's a, a substantial difference, but it's not a minute-per-mile difference. So there's, you have to find that medium between fat metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism, and running fast enough. But if you keep it slow enough, that's exactly right. It seems to be that a, there's a certain percentage of your overall speed that you can burn less carbs and and use more fats and there's a lot to be said for when you do your your overall mileage during the week and your long runs to learn your body has to learn to metabolize fats so for instance when we talk about long runs generally for the people that i coach i don't usually have them run much longer than 20 miles very often when you go beyond 20 miles you deplete your body of the glycogen that is stored, okay? So you're, you're learning to metabolize the fats as well as you can, but you're still burning your carbohydrates, so you're using up your glycogen stores. But every once in a while, you need to go on to 22, perhaps, maybe sometimes 24, to teach your body how to metabolize fats when it's got no glycogen to use. Now, that's an important thing, what I just said here. When your body has glycogen and fats, it's always going to it's always going to pick glycogen because it can it can burn glycogen more efficiently than fats. F- 
fats are not necessarily an efficient source of fuel or a quick source, I should say quick source of fuel. Okay. So you need to teach the body how to do that. And one way to do that is to go beyond the stage where you've depleted yourself and so your body can only metabolize fats. But, but here's the caveat. When you do that, you've depleted your muscles and your liver of glycogen, which is going to take a long time to recover. So once you do that, you can only do that every so often. Mm. So uh, at finish lines of marathons, I obviously, because of I coach and so on, I, I listen to conversations. I kind of probably listen a little too much to what's going on around me. But I often hear people say, God, I don't know what happened today. You know, two weeks ago, I, I ran 28 miles and I felt fantastic. But today, boy, by 13 miles, I was out of gas. Well, that's exactly why they were out of gas. Because they had, they burned all their all their stores, and they they you know so after thirteen, they were just burning their metab their metabolizing fats, and the body that's that's difficult to metabolize fats over a long period of time with no glycogen as well. Ah, so you're saying, in training, if you hit the wall on purpose to try to train yourself to get through the wall, so to speak. That's a dangerous thing because it takes a long time to come back from hitting the wall. So in training, you want to barely, rarely do that. Is that what you don't want, yeah, you don't. You don't, you want to do it sometimes, but it's you, rarely. Right. But besides the fact of teaching your body physiologically how to metabolize fats when you do that, it's a mental thing because mentally, when you run out of gas, it doesn't feel very good, <laughs> and you have you have to teach your mind how to get through that stage, like. You know, people might use the word pain or whatever. It's not pain. It's a it's a different mental state to say, you know, I've I've got nothing in the tank, but I'm going to keep going. Uh, I'm trying to think of the quote from uh, is it Teddy Roosevelt that said, uh, "It's not it's not about uh, when you when you uh, the people who keep going. It's the people who keep going when they got nothing left. It's something like that. I can't remember the exact quote, but the idea is to learn how to keep going when you've got nothing left." So, what when you were running marathons, what did you do anything um, in particular to train your body to metabolize fat? Okay, now we didn't know it, but we didn't have the science to explain it to us. Like I always say, it's the coaches and the athletes sometimes. Well, it always is. They come up with the great ideas, and then you tell a scientist what you did and how it worked and the scientists tell you why it worked. Okay. But what I used to do is I used to actually uh, run my long runs on Sunday morning because I didn't have to open my store until later on Sundays. So I would run my, you know, my, my long run on Sunday mornings, but what I would do is so I would eat on Saturday night, I'd run my long run, but then I would not eat. Now I would drink, but I would not eat again until Monday morning. Okay. And that would, I, I really felt that that was a way to teach my body how to metabolize stored fats. Because after my long run, essentially, I didn't have much glycogen left in my body. So my body had to learn to metabolize fats. And so my Monday morning run, obviously, I didn't feel real good. Because I didn't have anything left in the tank, as, you, as I say. But after eating on Monday, you know, then things would come back around. But I, I think that learning how to metabolize fats is an important, important factor here. Uh, something Joe and I talked about earlier today is we talked about how women are closing the gap a little bit on men. Uh, and, like, it's not unusual, well, it's not super unusual to see women now do very, very well 
in marathons. In fact, in some regional marathons, sometimes you'll find women winning the overall competition. And one reason for that, or the, the theories, you know, are that women can metabolize fats quite a bit more efficiently than men. All right? So when you look at a man uh, and he runs a 10K and then you look at his marathon, and then you look at a woman hit her 10K and you look at her marathon, you'll see very often that the percentage of difference is much less for a woman than it is for a man. Now, there could be a couple factors there, but one thing we know is women, their bodies are set up, for instance, for pregnancy to learn how to metabolize fats. So it definitely seems that women are much more efficient in metabolizing fats than men. Now, the other part that goes along with that, men have a strong sense of, you know, I'm really, really good, and I'm going to go as hard as I can as long as I can. And maybe they aren't as <laughs> efficient as uh, at, at their time goals as women. Women tend to be a little bit more methodical than men. I hate to say that. Maybe sound a little bit... Uh, it sounds fine. Yeah, right. okay. But, but yeah, it could be that, that men maybe don't, and in general, don't pace themselves as women do. But we know for sure that women metabolize fats better. Um, you, and, again, moving to ultra marathons, you can definitely see that women metabolize fats better than men. Very interesting. Um, just to backtrack a second there, <laughs> if I got this right, what you used to do, you eat dinner Saturday night, get up Sunday morning, no breakfast, no breakfast. No breakfast. Run your long run, which is what, 20 miles? Uh, well, you know, this in, in times I'd be experimenting anywhere from 20 to 30 miles. Okay. And what, you know, relative to your marathon pace, like, gives a sense of how fast you're running your this long run. Well, I'm not saying that you should do this. Sure. <laughs> okay. Do as, I, do as I say, not as I do. But m- most often... Um, like one of my training partners was a guy named Dan Scarda, who I love Dan dearly. But Dan and I used to hammer each other in our long runs. I mean, sometimes our long runs would have won most, most, most regional marathons. <laughs> I'm not saying you should do that. All right. But, yeah, we would run fairly tough in our, in our marathon, on our long runs. And even in most of my competitive days, I did, which probably was a mistake. I probably could have run much faster if I didn't do that, now in retrospect. But I used to run, my long runs were probably usually within 20 to 20 to 30 seconds of a mile uh, of my uh, my uh, goal marathon pace at the time. Hmm. So, okay, dinner Saturday night, no breakfast, wake up, run your long run, which is too hard, and then you basically fast for 24 hours. Well, actually 36 hours. So I'd have dinner on... on oh, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I'd have dinner on, on, on Saturday night, so... Until Sunday night's 24 hours, not eat Sunday night, but eat breakfast on Monday after a morning run. I mean, how do you even sleep that Sunday night? That sounds pretty rough. I mean, is, or did you just kind of adapt to that? It's, yeah, it's exactly. Brutal. Exactly. You know, your body adapts to a lot of things that it's given. Um, yeah, it, it, I, I really think that really taught me how to metabolize, metabolize fats. And it, 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 and it was able, you know, it's tough mentally. And so mentally... Uh, you know, I would like to convince myself that it made me tougher mentally to be able to do that. You know, part part of part of all training, and in especially marathon training, is the the mental part of it. Learning how to handle um, uh, discomfort, and you know that's discomfortable. I mean, it's not comfortable to do that, but it teaches you how to handle discomfort. Did you ever? Did you ever um, think about or actually do this? The opposite, where you would. Do you know? Do your long run in a fasted state, like do the fast before and then run. 
Yeah, generally that wasn't on purpose. It's just because in re- in retail sometimes you're very busy on a Saturday and you might not get a chance to eat anything. Um, and then you know you're going to do your long run anyway. Oh yeah, I've run marathons without any any food in the tank at all. And I mean, I, I don't mean marathons, but um, long runs without any food in the tank. Um, and that's very very difficult. And it, right. and it teaches you that there it's important when you hear the term. We can talk about carbo loading here in a little bit, but it teaches you that. You can't really mess around with a marathon. You can mess around with a 5K. You can make some mistakes. You know, you hear people say, oh, I stayed out all night, and I drank beer with my friends, and I had a great race the next day. You know, you can do that with shorter races. That's very difficult to do in a marathon. In a marathon, you really want to, you know, put your cards down correctly. And uh, so when you do stuff like that and you learn that it's difficult to run with no gas in the tank, you learn, well, I better put some gas in the tank. Um. So you've talked about the long run and different types of long runs, and the and you mentioned there at one point that you can't just have a long run and then overall low mileage, and you also can't just have overall high mileage with no long run. So let me ask you this: um, in terms of overall running volume, you know, high mileage, low mileage, uh, it seems to me like that most of your fitness gains are made during your actual specific workouts, whether that's a targeted long run or a tempo run or track workout. But it, it also seems that a common denominator for most elite marathoners or, you know, people who are able to run it at faster paces is they do run overall high mileage and a good majority of their overall mileage is just easy running. Um, so I guess the question is, what is the value of a ton of easy miles versus just hitting a couple key workouts, you know, maybe one of them being a long run throughout the week, and then in between just making sure you're recovering for the next workout, which could be days off or just like biking or easy short jogs. Why all this easy volume in between? You know, that is... Uh, that is going to that people debate that all the time, and what I'm going to say is going to sound old school, but f- facts are facts. Now people will tell me I'm wrong, but facts are facts. Easy runs, um, besides the metabolizing fast as we talked about, they build blood volume. The more you run, the more blood volume you will build. The more blood volume you have in your body, the more oxygen you can carry. The more oxygen you can carry, the more you efficiently you can fuel the muscles. Okay, besides building the blood volume, the more miles you build, the more capillaries you build deep into muscle tissue. Now, people think that capillaries, for instance, are a finite item. They're not. They're not. If you train hard, you can build more capillaries deep into your muscle tissue. You build more capillaries deep into your muscle tissue, again, you can fuel muscles better. So, when people say the word junk miles, I really, really dislike that term. I don't think there's any such thing as junk miles. Now, it may not be a, a, quote, purposeful workout, but one thing you need to understand is when you stress the body in a hard workout or a long workout, there's a bunch of stuff that builds up in your muscles. I, you know, I hate to use the word toxins, but maybe that's the best word for it. Crap. Uh, waste products. Okay? It builds up on the muscles, and it sits there. And it, 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 until you flush it back out, it can kind of think about it like it, it can do damage. It can kind of eat on the tissue. So if um, if you've got stuff that's sitting there after a hard workout or a long workout, and you say, well, 
I'm not going to run again until I run hard again. Well, yeah, that's not exactly true. You want to exercise, get those muscles exercising, get some blood flowing through those muscles, put some oxygen in those muscles so it flushes that stuff out. I don't know if you've ever experienced where you've done something hard and you're just really sore, but somebody makes you get up and do something like, even if it's not running, you, they make you do something and you think, dang, I, I actually feel better now than I did this morning when I you know, was trying to rest. Well, there's something to that. Um, easy miles flush out the body. They, they build blood volume. They build capillary beds. And when you do that, it makes you a better runner. Now, we can go off on a lot of tangents here, but there are three, well, four important things to do in marathon training. Long run being the most important. I mean, if all else fails, I mean, you know, most people listening to us right now are probably not professional runners. So you have a life. You have a family. You have a work. You have work. You know, have a spouse, so on like that. So, you know, everything's not going to fall into place all the time. But I will say this, if you take your running seriously, you really need to set a time every day, a goal that that's your time. Like that's the time for you. You know, you take care of your family, take care of your work, take care of your spouse, so on. But set a time every day and get that accomplished. Um, you know, occasionally you're not going to be able to. Okay, so if I, all else fails, get your long run in. That's the most important thing. Now, your next, your next most important workout is what I call your tempo slash semi-long. So if you're long, let's just take numbers as an example. Let's say your 20-miler, your long run is a 20-miler. So then your semi-long run, say, is, say, a 10 or a 12-miler. Okay, that's your second most important thing. And in that 10 or 12, you throw some tempo. Okay, all right, that's your second most important thing. Your next most important thing is speed. And people always say to me, I don't need to get speed for a marathon. I'm not trying to run fast in a marathon. I just... You know, I just want to run, you know, efficiently and finish. Well, if you do speed work properly, you don't go crazy. We don't go to the track and run quarters as hard as we can. But we do speed work properly. We teach our body how to run more efficiently. We teach our muscles how to use oxygen more efficiently. We teach the, <clears throat> you know, the oxygen exchange in the lung more efficiently. But <clears throat> I'm going to move to something else in a second. But if we do speed properly, this is a really important that, I, that you need to understand this. Properly. We're not going to the track and run as hard as we can as long as we can. We're learning how to run smooth and efficient and still running fast. That will teach us to be more efficient actually in the marathon. Okay? So the long run builds the blood volume, teaches the, the fat metabolism and so on. The tempo run teaches us how to run pace. The speed work, what it does is if you watch people run, you know, it's just it's kind of funny. You see non-runners talk about this all the time. Oh, I saw Joe running down the street. And his form just looked terrible. It's so funny, blah, 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 blah. Well, if you do speed work, you will improve your form. If you have less wasted energy by doing speed work, you're going to have less wasted energy in a marathon. All right? So if we can use less energy for 26 miles, we can run a better marathon. In other words, you can be really fit but have poor form. And, you know, you can not run as well as possible. Example would be swimming. Any of you that are triathletes or swimmer have a swimming background understand you can be very, very fit, but if you have poor swimming form, you know you can't swim that fast. Well, the same thing applies to running, maybe not as drastically, but it, it it is very important. Learning how to run efficiently and smooth is real important. Joe and I were talking about this earlier today. Dr. Kenneth Cooper, who was very famous for the book Aerobics and teaching people, 
that in 1968 that if you exercise, you know, 20 minutes a day, you can be a lot more, uh, a lot fitter person and have a better life, a better, a better uh, 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 quality of life. Okay. Well, he brought, oh, I don't know, 25, in the beginning, he brought maybe 25 of the best runners in the country to Dallas to his performance lab, and he did some max VO2 testing and so on. And here's a really interesting thing. Prefontaine was one of the people he tested. Most of you know who Steve Prefontaine is. He had a max VO2 of 80, 84 or 85, okay? This, I think, was 1974 or maybe 75, just before Pre died. But anyway, Pre had the highest max VO2 that he had tested at that point. Well, Pre, as you remember, did not win a medal in the, in the previous Olympics, okay? He was very, very good. He was one of our best runners. But he didn't win a medal in the Olympics. On the other hand, Frank Shorter, who was also tested in that group, won the gold medal in the marathon in 1972, a couple years prior to this. Shorter's VO2 max was 72. That's, to me, that's amazing. What that shows me is, you know, that Shorter was, uh, his form was much more efficient. So he could, he could actually run, Shorter and Pre were pretty much the same ability at 5,000, and 10,000 within a second or two. They were both very, very good at 5,000 and 10,000. Pre was better miler than Shorter, okay? But 5,000 and 10,000, they were pretty much the same. But Shorter was the best marathoner in the world with only a VO2 max of 72. That shows us that efficiency is critically important. If you ever want to watch a really cool uh, film on learning how to run efficiently, watch the 1972 Olympic Marathon which is broadcast live in the United States and is credited with actually starting the running boom in the United States. Frank Shorter took the lead in that marathon and ran through the streets of Munich, Germany, smooth as silk. And he just was so smooth. And people looked up and said, an American, American is running and winning the Olympic marathon, which had not happened since, I believe, 1908. And it ignited the running boom. But if you want to learn how to run efficiently, watch Shorter in that race and if you try to emulate what he does, it may not be perfect, but it's pretty darn good. Speaking of Frank Shorter and speaking of Easy Miles, I heard him say, um, talking about that same question, like volume, how, much, how many miles should you run? And from what I understand, he ran hard intervals pretty much year-round as part of his training. Um, but he said that the fitter he got... And the harder his workouts were, the more easy running he had to do to recover from the workouts. Kind of like you're saying, it's, it's flushing out. So it seems kind of like a virtuous cycle. You know, you're running more easy. As your workouts get more intense, you maybe need more of the flushing out. And then the flushing out running is also building the capillaries and the blood volume. Um, but let me ask you this. If, if you were advising somebody who was basically starting from zero or very low fitness level and, you know, has run very little, would you tell them to just just do a bunch of easy running until you can get your volume to a certain level? Then we'll worry about quality and, and intensity and stuff. Or would you kind of try to develop all the different paces together as it all increases? All right. That's a good question. That, that, that becomes both mental and physical there. All right, so if you run just easy every day, um, 
you know, you can get very, very fit. And Frank is a great example. Frank said, if you can run injury-free for a couple of years, you can become a very good runner. I mean, it's something pretty simple. But what happens is a lot of people get stale. If you run easy every day, you can become a very good runner or, you know, a, a pretty good runner. But you kind of get mentally stale. So the idea is if you actually throw in some variability into your training, it, it, it actually makes training more exciting. That's, that's an important factor here. Um, you know, I, I deal with runners all day long. I mean, I, I probably, I honestly probably have dealt with more different runners than anybody on planet Earth because I've been in the running store business for 42 years. I work on the floor seven days a week. I talk to every different runner from somebody who's first trying to run their first mile in their life to somebody who's run, you know, 100,000 miles. I mean, I talk to everybody. And, and one, of the, one of the things that I, I have picked up on is the people who go out and run the same course, same pace every day. That's fine. But they, there's an excitement loss there. You know, like, for instance, uh, to avoid injury, for instance, running different paces, running on different surfaces, running some trails, running some grass, running on some golf courses, running on some pavement, running on some rubber tracks. All that stuff makes, makes running more fun. It gets you more involved. It, running, you, it, it makes you appreciate the sport more. And um, Joe and I talked about this earlier, talking about culture and environment and all that. That is a critical part of being a good runner is being excited about it. You want to be excited. And to be excited, you, you do these different variable things, and it makes you more excited about it. If you look, if every day you say, oh, God, what have I got to do today? You know, then, you, you, you know, that's not what you want running to be. You want to be, as my coach in college used to say, Al Carrier said, run for fun and personal best. You want to make running fun. Now, that doesn't mean you jog. You know, every day easy. Running for fun, you know, pain sometimes is fun. <laughs> you know, running running hill repeats on a ski slope is fun. Um, variability, is, it, I think, is important. Can you run easy every day and become good? Yes, you can. I'll get, you know, to further ex, uh, expound on this. Um, my brother's roommate <clears throat> at, the, at Florida, the Florida Track Club in Gainesville, Florida, was a guy named Bruce Carpenter. Bruce Carpenter had run for Rutgers. University and was a steeplechase record holder at Rutgers. Bruce is a personal friend of my family. He is actually on the cover of Once a Runner. If you've ever read the book Once a Runner, uh, Bruce Carpenter is the runner on the cover. And if you haven't read Once a Runner, you need to read Once a Runner. It is a novel, but it goes into the mindset of being a good runner. But anyway, one thing that I found amazing is when I was a kid and I would go visit my brother and stay with he and Bruce Carpenter, and I would run with Bruce in the morning, Bruce was a of uh, 23, 30, five-miler, for example. Um, he was a 104, 105 half-marathoner. And I'm a 16-year-old kid showing up to run with Bruce Carpenter in the morning, and we would run 8.30 per mile pace. And I was like, what? I, I, I mean, I couldn't figure it out. But that's what Bruce did. He ran that kind of pace a lot, but he was also very successful. But he also ran some very intense workouts. But a lot of it was a, he also ran a lot of 8.30 per mile. Wow. Uh, all right, so you touched on your um, shoe selling career, your retail um, experience, and talking to different runners and helping runners. Um, I want to get more into the shoes because, you know, like we mentioned in the intro, you've, you're a U.S. patent holder in shoe technology. Um, you got huge shoe experience. But before we do that, I want to 
Um, dig in a couple more things on marathon training. Um, you know, we're talking about this this goal of avoiding the wall. I don't, you know, and that's going to be a combination of training your body to be more fat efficient and then also maybe some fueling during the race too. Um, so here's a question. If my goal is to, if I'm planning on using fuel in a race, meaning I'm planning on, I'm going to drink Gatorade at mile, whatever, or I'm going to take this gel or this goo. Like if I'm planning on ingesting food while I'm eating, that means I probably need to train doing that. I need to practice my, you know, I need my stomach to get used to that. So here's the problem I see is if you're using fuel in training, then is that diminishing your ability to metabolize the fat since you're kind of depending on the fuel you're taking in? <laughs> ah, that's, a, that's, that's a fantastic question. I mean, that, that is a, you might even want to repeat that question. That is critically important. Here's the deal. When you train long and you're getting ready for a marathon, should you take gels, energy gels, and so on during your long run to prepare for the marathon? Because in the marathon, you're going to do that. So should you train to be able to do it? Yes, you should train to be able to do it. You've got to teach your digestive system to handle these things. And you've got to find out which gels your body can take. For instance, uh, a lot of these gels work on maltodextrin. Well, maltodextrin works great. But maltodextrin on some people's GI tract causes some gastric distress, as you will. All right. Uh, there's a company called Cliff, Cliff Shot. They make Cliff Shots and Cliff Blocks. Their, their uh, energy is coming from rice syrup which tends to be a little easier on the GI tract. Maybe doesn't release quite as quickly as maltodextrin into your bloodstream, but it works and it's easier on your GI tract. So you definitely need to figure out what works for you. Um, generally, keep this in mind, too. If you take an energy gel, you don't want to take that with a sugary drink. If you take an energy gel, make sure you take it with water. Okay, Too much sugar concentration will definitely upset your GI tract. Okay, So if you take an, a sugary drink, don't take a gel. If you take water, take, you can take a gel. Don't take them both at the same time. Now, here's the, here's the thing. If you train with gels all the time, you then have taught your body how not to use its own stores. Okay? So, if you want to teach the body how to use its own stores, occasionally you're going to have to train it with no replacement gels in your long runs. Now, you, you follow what I'm saying is, you want to take gels to learn how to do it. Make sure your GI tract can handle it. See how your body handles it. See how you feel at the end of the long run when you've taken, when you've taken uh, hydration and, and sugars along the way. But you don't want to do that all the time. Or let's say, for instance, um, maybe you might normally take four, five, six gels in a long run, or that's what you plan on doing in the marathon. Well, maybe occasionally you should only take one or two in your long run. But you definitely don't want to train with them all the time. Now, you know, other people are going to say, well, if I train with gels, <clears throat> I can run considerably better in my long runs and teach myself how to run faster. Yes, that's true, but you don't want to do it all the time. Okay. So you kind of, you have to blend, you have to do both and kind of have a hybrid approach there. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I, 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 let me mention ahead. this to you. Like I had said earlier, um, we didn't used to use gels. We didn't know about gels. We didn't know that you could do it. Most of us didn't even think you could drink while we were running hard because our stomach wouldn't handle it. I still remember the time, I, I can't remember who the athlete was, but he was an East African, and he was running one of the major marathons, and he's running along, and he reaches in his shorts, and he, puts, he takes something out of his shorts, and he puts it in his mouth. Nobody knew what it was, 
And all when they interviewed him afterwards, he just said, my magic pill. Nobody knew what it was. Obviously, what it was was a glucose tablet. I mean, it was, it was, it was like a, an epiphany moment in our sport. I mean, watching on international TV, here's a guy pulling a tablet out of his shorts. And you say, oh, of course. I mean, we all know that nowadays. Well, it's funny. When we look at our sport over time, it has evolved tremendously. When it comes to, we're going to talk about shoes here in a minute, comes to equipment, comes to what we know about so many things, it evolved over time. You know, I'm going off on a tangent here, but let me mention to you, one of the greatest runners of all time is a guy named Pavo Normi. Pablo Normi was a Finn. He was known as the Flying Finn in the 1920s. Now, <clears throat> his times today, a lot of modern runners would say, well, they're really not that good. Why, why was He held every world record there was in distance running. <clears throat> well, if you look at the shoes he wore, the fact that he had a full-time job, you look at this, 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 the fact that he had to you know, ride a train, didn't get on an airplane to go to races, stuff like that, that's the stuff you have to look at. <clears throat> but why I mentioned Pablo is, when I was in college, say 50 or 40, 50 years after Pablo had set all those world records, basically everybody on my team, everybody on my varsity team, had at least run faster than at least one of Pablo's world records. Well, that doesn't mean they're a better runner than Pablo. We realize that we're evolving all the time. Hmm. Um, so, looking back now, you know, you coach athletes, you have you know, a, a really well-developed training philosophy. Who would you point out as, like, the one or two biggest influences on how you approach marathon training now? Or is it just a big mix of a whole it, bunch of different people? It, it, it is a big mix. Um, to, to, this is going to sound um, that it doesn't really make sense. But my collegiate coach, who was not a, mar- he was not a marathon coach, he coached me at the at the the fifteen hundred meters, the five k, the ten k, cross country, and so on. What he taught me about running uh, follows me into the marathon. Okay, so I would say that Al Carius of North Central College is probably my greatest influence, or on par with my brother Dave. Dave Milliman is my brother, also known as Moose, in his heyday, in the fittest time of his life. Uh, he was a big man. I don't know. He had no body fat. We're not talking about that. He was a big man. 6'3", very broad shoulders, very big bone. He uh, grew up uh, in uh, a farming lifestyle where he developed muscle structure and so on. He was a big man. He's probably the largest man <clears throat> in the world to ever run consistently under under 230 marathons. His best was only 227. But when you realize how big he was when he did that, probably 190, 195 pounds, running against men that weighed 120 pounds, that's incredible when you consider he carried 70 more pounds than they did. So I learned a lot <clears throat> from Dave, learned a lot from the, uh, the people that Dave associated with. Dave was older than me. He associated with uh, Frank Shorter, Marty LaCourie, Jeff Galloway. Uh, I mean, I can't continue to name them. But Jack Batchel, a lot of these guys, Barry Brown, that as I hung around them as a young man, I just picked up so much stuff from them. Then later on, um, Arthur Lydiard, who is, as I say, the godfather of modern theory, he actually, in the 1950s and 60s, um, was the one that, that coached many uh, Olympic champions and so on. He, <clears throat> he, I read everything from him that I could read. I mean, again, there's no internet, so we're reading books, so on. I was reading everything I could read that Arthur was putting out and so on. 
And later on in life, when I was in the shoe business, I actually got to be, I got to go to dinner with Arthur. I got to hang out with Arthur, got to talk to him one-on-one. He became friends with a good friend of mine, would hang out. They both liked to drink beer and talk. <laughs> anyway, I learned an awful lot from Arthur. Arthur probably <clears throat> is probably the greatest distance coach of all time. But yeah, like Joe said, I picked a lot of stuff up from a lot of people. And <clears throat> again, being that I, I see so many different people every day, and I listen to so many stories, and I've been to so many races, I <clears throat> have picked up so much stuff. Um, so there's not any one influence, but there are several influences. Speaking of Arthur Lydiard, would you say that he's somewhat misconceived today? Because people who don't haven't really read his stuff kind of just offhandedly say, oh, he's just all about long, slow distance, you know, kind of outdated. Like, what do you think are the biggest misconceptions about Lydiard? That, that is the biggest misconception. Everybody said that Arthur was all about LSD, long, slow distance. That was his base training. Arthur believed in phase training. You built a base, and then the bigger your base, then the, then the more you could build off of that. And a lot of people just that followed Arthur didn't read his books, and they just stayed in the LSD, the LSD <laughs> phase. Um, he, <clears throat> he had several phases that you moved into. After you did the long, slow distance and built your base, then you added strength training. Now, strength training, he did not believe in lifting weights at all. Not, Arthur believed in doing hill repeats, hill bounding, um, running on grass, running on dirt, um, running difficult courses. That's how he built strength. He did not believe in weightlifting at all. He was a very, very adamant against weightlifting. And he said, if you're learning to run efficiently and, you're care- and you're, you're, you, you, you build muscles that you're not going to use for running, that's just, just weight you're going to pull along that you don't need. Now, not that everybody wants to look like a plucked chicken with their shirt off, but on the other hand, if you, if you look at his athletes, they didn't look like that. They actually looked fairly muscular. Because they did a lot of other training. They did, um, you know, like I say, hill bounding, where you run up a hill like a kangaroo. You don't try to run up the hill as fast as you can. You bound up the hill like a kangaroo. But, yeah, people have misinterpreted Arthur uh, major, major, major league. Um, For instance, he coached uh, Peter Snell, who was the uh, world record holder and Olympic champion at both the 800 meters and the 1500 meters, the half mile and the mile, basically. Um, But he had Peter Snell run a marathon just a few weeks before he won the Olympic gold medal at 800 meters. So, yeah, people people have definitely misconstrued Arthur. Yeah. Um, all right, before we get into a shoe cons- uh, discussion here, uh, you mentioned carbo-loading. Well, what's your, what are your general thoughts about carbo-loading? Should you do it? What does it mean? How do you do it? Okay, so <clears throat> the body can metabolize carbohydrates and sugars faster than any other, any other fuel you give it. And you can, you can, you know, build your blood sugar level up very quickly by using sugars and carbohydrates. Okay, <clears throat> your body, uses, you know, builds muscles with protein, but it also uses proteins for fuel. Then fats, <clears throat> your body uses, obviously we talked about, your body uses fats for fuel. <clears throat> but if you want to store as much glycogen in your liver and your muscles as possible, you really need to carbo-load before a major event. Now, it's not as simple as eating a pasta dinner the night before the race. Um... What we, what we generally believe, well, what we, what we know is that if you can deplete your body somewhat of carbohydrates for a short period of time, then your body will respond by storing carbohydrates when you give it to the, give it to the body. So <clears throat> we used to, we, we called it a depletion phase and then a loading phase. Like say you were going to run a marathon 
the next coming weekend. So perhaps on Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, you might not eat any carbohydrates. And over um, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you ate a lot of carbohydrates. Well, <clears throat> we don't want to really carry that depletion phase quite as long. Um, again, if you were a professional athlete, maybe you could. But you've got, you've got a life to live. You've got work to do, so on and so forth. You've got to function. So you can't completely deplete, deplete your body of carbohydrates completely. But if you reduce the carbohydrates for a couple of days, two to three days, I'm not saying completely eliminate them, but reduce them. And then starting three days out from a marathon, if you start loading your body with more carbohydrates, I mean, your body will actually respond by storing those carbohydrates when it doesn't need to use them for fuel. So you're tapering down for the marathon. You're not running as many miles. You're eating more carbohydrates. You're not burning those carbohydrates, which, of course, you think, oh, that's going to make me fat. Well, yeah, what if you did that over a long period of time? But... So you're, <clears throat> you have to drink a lot of fluids when you have carbohydrates because it takes a lot of fluid to digest carbohydrates. So over those last three days, you eat a lot of carbohydrates. It's not, again, just not the night before. It needs to be over a period of time. Uh, in my experience, here's a good example. I was traveling to a marathon with a friend of mine, and I had carbohydrate done all this stuff, carbohydrate loaded and so on. But the day before, when we were traveling to the marathon, <clears throat> our flights got delayed, <clears throat> you know, storms, so on and so forth. Well, the friend I was traveling with was a real picky eater, did not want to eat anything that was bad for their body and so on. Well, hell, every airport I was in, you know, I'd grab a Snickers bar or something, even though I couldn't really eat a meal, and I would put that fuel in. Well, the next day when I'm running the marathon, I felt fantastic. I was a little surprised after, you know, an all-day of travel the day before. I felt really great. Went back out on the course to find my friend, and I ran all the way back to the 20-mile mark and never found my friend. I was like, what happened? Well, my friend had dropped out of the race because they felt so terrible because they had no calories in their system. So just they're good, good idea there. But that is an important part. Most people think carbohydrate loading is just a carbo, load, carbo meal the night before. No, it's over a period of three, two to three days. Gotcha. Um, very cool. So... Jeff, you're kind of in the center of the shoe universe. I mean, you you just mentioned you have I don't know how many years of um, of selling shoes, you know, modifying shoes, wearing shoes, um, and it's an interesting time because we're recording this September 2020, and over the past year or more. Um, it's been all of a sudden a lot of controversy around shoes in the competitive distance running world with the introduction of certain types of carbon plates inside shoes and there's this whole question of at what point is shoe technology um an unfair advantage is it i mean you know where do you draw the line can you just run a marathon on roller skates like what's so there's this kind of somewhat ethical debate around shoes and what's acceptable they're starting to draw lines around what's acceptable um, in major marathons, things like that. So I guess, first of all, to start this part of the talk off, um, can you just say a little bit about, like, just generally, like, what is your general philosophy of around what a running shoe should be? All right. So that that said, th this, is, this is a great topic, and we can go down for days on this one, but this is... I'm in the shoe business. I sell shoes. So what I'm about to say 
don't, <laughs> it's going to sound a little weird. But I think the greatest of all engineers, you know, created us. And he, he didn't make a whole lot of mistakes. So our feet are pretty well designed. So I think the most efficient way to run is to run like you're barefoot, but with a shoe on. Because we can't run barefoot on asphalt, concrete, sand spurs, nails, glass, so on and so forth. And we weren't meant to run, you know, we weren't meant to run on pavement and concrete in all these surfaces that we run on. I mean, our bodies weren't designed for that. Now you say, oh, the Tarahumara Indians down in Mexico, well, they run barefoot. Well, they do, but they, they actually have very flexible foot structure. Uh, we can get into that a little bit later, but most of us of European descent uh, have a more rigid foot, okay? Well, more rigid feet don't absorb as much shock, so you better run on a soft surface if you're going to run barefoot. But a, f a more flexible foot can run uh, barefoot on, on harder surfaces. All the, the Tarahumaras and, say, the East Africans do run a lot on soft surfaces, clay, and so on. So when it comes to shoe design, I think a shoe that tries to uh, enhance the characteristics of the barefoot are the way to run. In other words, um, you don't want a shoe that inhibits that motion. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about medially and lateral motion. I'm talking about forward motion. When, we run, when we're running, we're going in a forward motion. We're not playing basketball. We're not playing tennis. We're not going from side to side. So we want a shoe that encourages that forward motion. On the other hand, if, if someone has problems like, quote, overpronation or underpronation, what, supination, maybe we want to address that by giving them some structure on the medial or the lateral side. But when we start to inhibit that forward motion, we start to work. Those 33 joints in the foot are meant to articulate, which is that articulation absorbs shock, and it propels the body. When we start to inhibit that, we start to make the body less efficient. Um, example, myself, <clears throat> I've raced quite a lot barefoot because shoe technology has come so far. When I, when I started running, shoes were, were not anywhere near like they are today. We didn't have the foams we did and so on. And wearing, wearing shoes uh, sometimes was an inhibiting factor. Um, I actually raced, like I say, barefoot. And uh, if anybody can remember uh, the incident in 1984 where Zola Bud connected with Mary Decker on the track, um, and Mary Decker fell and she was America's darling, and the South African Zola Bud, who tripped her up, was running barefoot. <clears throat> so, anyway, back to, back to what I'm saying is, if we can make the foot more efficient and function like it's barefoot, but give it a little bit of cushioning and a little bit of better traction, <clears throat> I believe that's the way to go. But, now, that said, we I actually have worked on shoes since the 70s, trying to make shoes make somebody faster. <clears throat> and I started working on shoes uh, and selling shoes in 1978, where I would not only work on my own shoes, I'd work on uh, friend's shoes and customer shoes and so on. And <clears throat> what I learned is running on indoor wooden tracks, I found that some people could actually run faster on these raised wooden tracks um, than they could on a, on a non-raised wooden track. And a raised wooden track has support structures. And so if you run, if the per people that could run efficiently on boards would sometimes get more bounce off the boards. So for years, I tried to create shoes that would give you more bounce, whether it be with foams, whether it be suspending, uh, gluing a suspended net under the foot to work like a trampoline. I did all kinds of stuff to make it, make, you know, make it better. I took foam from uh, 
uh, toys, for instance, which other people have done too. I took uh, foam out of toys and put them on the bottom of shoes. I took <clears throat> the soles off of shoes, and uh, so I was just running on the foam. Lots of different things to actually be faster. But in the early 90s, I started working on using composite fibers, which means fiberglass, carbon, Kevlar, <clears throat> uh, graphites, and so on, trying to create something that would actually propel you faster. And I was, <clears throat> I was actually worked uh, extensively in this field. Um, it had been done before. People had tried <clears throat> carbon fiber, for instance, but the, it was unsuccessful, made shoes stiff, made people have Achilles injuries and so on. But I was able to be pretty successful with this, um, but at the time, I couldn't get a manufacturer on board with it because they'd have to re retool up their factory, and it would be a very expensive process. But <clears throat> to give you an example, I was able to build um, shoes with glass, fiberglass. If you think about a pole vault pole, a pole vault pole, the fibers can elongate and contract. So when, uh, uh, what's his name, Bob Segrin was jumping the pole vault, I, I'm not going to know the exact figures here, but in 1968, they invented fiberglass poles. Before that, people, um, basically poles did not flex. They were kind of like stiff levers. The fiberglass pole, you, the, you'd plant the pole, it would flex, the fibers would elongate, and then you, 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 they'd spring you forward over the bar. Okay, so I learned quickly that carbon fiber, graphites, Kevlar, and so on, could give you structure and support, but fiberglass fibers could elongate and contract and actually propel you forward. And I built several shoes out of glass. Um, I actually had several manufacturers make some prototype samples. And it, here's a good example. Uh, uh, some friends of mine were trying to break three hours of the marathon at the Tybee Island Marathon in Georgia. And I said, well, here, let me go down with you and I'll pace you so you can do that. Well, I wore a pair of fiberglass shoes <clears throat> that I had built. Now, they were still in a crude stage. Remember, I'm building these in my garage. And I was at a point where I still hadn't figured out the proper bonding to make bonds that were flexible enough um, because the bond goes through a lot of stress. But anyway, <clears throat> so I ran the marathon with them, and yes, we broke three hours and all that stuff. But the next day, which was shocking is, I was able to go out and run a hard 10-mile workout. And most of you who run marathons understand that the day after marathon, sometimes you can't walk downstairs. But I was able to do that. And it, 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 was a, it, it made me realize that I was really onto something here. Not only was running... Uh, that wasn't a fast time for me or anything like that, but I was able to run with very little effort with basically springs on my feet. And because the fiberglass worked as a decelerating factor, like the muscles that are usually involved in decelerating the body were no longer used, I wasn't as sore the next day. So, you know, on and on, I've learned a lot. But yeah, we're in a, we're in a time right now where we're talking about can shoes make you faster? Oh, absolutely. No question about it. Whether the shoes we see on the market right now with the new carbon plate technology is the way to go. I don't know the answer to that. I know I, I did a lot of work with this. I know that when I made shoes too stiff using carbon fiber, I saw Achilles problems, calf problems, hamstring problems, patella tendon problems. I saw those kind of issues. Could it propel you to be faster? Yes, but the long-term effect on the muscles, I don't know. I mean, my verdict is still out on that. But I, I do know that it is possible to make, make you faster with a shoe. Now, in the 18, I believe it was 1890s, in the track and field rule book, there was specifically paragraphs written about not being able to use springs in shoes. Well, so we look at it now and we say, well, these are springs. Can we use these or should these be legal? Well, if we look at the shoes that go back to Pavo Norby that he had in the 1920s, basically they were shoes with maybe a leather sole. 
or what they might have called plimsolls, where they had some gum rubber uh, for traction on the bottom. Well, if you look at that shoe and then you look at, say, what I started running in back in the late 60s and 70s, and then you look at today's shoes, today's shoes are springs, even if you don't put any carbon plate in them. Today's shoes are so much springier, so much livelier, allow you to train so much harder, so many more miles without getting, without getting the abuse that we got back then. If you take a shoe that we had just in my era, I'm not talking, you know, 100 years ago, I'm just saying in my era, if you put a shoe on that some of us train hundreds of miles a weekend and you were to run across a parking lot today, you would not want to do that. You'd say, how the heck are you running that? So we, there's constantly an evolution in equipment. And right now we're, we are seeing a big, big deal. Uh, uh, now, should this be legal? I, I don't know the answer, but I, I, I'll say this. That records are meant to be shot for. People are meant, you know, that's why you put why you put records out there to to motivate other people to shoot for those records. <clears throat> I just don't know that you you can't compare an athlete of of this era with one 20 years ago, with one 20 years before that, and so on, because of the technology and advancements. Um, I I think we are at a, a stage of revolution. We're we're going to see. So much happening now. I'm so glad to see the, the manufacturers, all the manufacturers, not, not just one, but all of them retooling up, understanding that composite fibers are the way to go. I knew this years ago that if you could make a shoe out of composite fibers, not only could you keep somebody from getting hurt, you could actually met, let them train uh, faster, harder. The shoes would last, for instance, on my, my project that I worked on, uh, believe it or not, Oakley was going to get in the shoe business. They tested our Tested my midsole. Um, most uh, foams have an energy return factor of 12 to 15 percent, but after 100 miles, they're down to about 8 uh, percent. My project that I worked on had an energy return factor of 46 percent, and after 5,000 miles, it still had 46 percent. So we are definitely at a stage of, of evolution, revolution, whatever you want to call it. I mean, shoes are going to come even farther exponentially probably than they have come. But we are at a major, we are majorly advanced over where we were in the 70s. It sounds like you're not too concerned about um, technology ruining the purity of the sport or worried about, you know, stopping the progress of this technology. I mean, but you also said you don't really know where the line should be. Um, So... It seems like there's two ways to look at this. You know, on the one hand, you could say, well, we got to draw a line on this technology because pretty soon we're going to have people running on trampolines and it's not running anymore. And so we got to make rules and regulate shoes. You know, as far as competitive Olympic, you know, elite athletes are concerned. Um, And then, but I guess the problem there is wherever you do draw the line is going to be pretty arbitrary because we've already come light years ahead where you we were just like you said but then on the other hand you could say you know and you hear this argument when it comes to performance enhancing drugs is look you know it's just make it an even playing field make it whatever it is available to everybody make it free you, you know you everybody has their own individual choice and then as long as everybody's on the same playing field it really doesn't matter because it's not like you can compare like you just said, you can't compare today's records to 50 years ago anyway, so what's the difference? What do you, do you think there is a point of like, all right, that's too much? Well, yeah, all right, so this, 
the IAAF, the International Athletic Federation, decided that, yes, they got to put some limits on this. All right? Coincidentally, the major manufacturer that has the most money in the game, <clears throat> their shoe that they were uh, promoting was 40 millimeters thick. I'm, I'm sorry, 39.5 millimeters thick, I believe it was. So the IAAF said, okay, shoes can't be more than 40 millimeters thick. So that shoe then fit under the limit. Okay, so now all the other manufacturers can say, okay, we can do that, but we have to stay within that. I mean, as you can imagine, if you take it to the extreme, um, you have you seen those things? I don't know what they're called, where they actually you run on a, looks like a, a roller blade, but it's got big springs on the bottom. And your, yeah, your yeah. stride length is like three times normal or whatever. Obviously, we don't want to get to that point. But, so there's an arbitrary line that's been drawn now at 40 millimeters thickness for a shoe. Okay. Well, <clears throat> this is, this is, this is you know, this, uh, as they say, slippery slope. I mean, we want to see people perform their best. But what I'm more concerned about now is not just speed, but I want to see runners not get hurt. I don't want to see technology that makes you faster but gets you hurt. Um, I don't know if anybody ever saw the movie um, The Jerk, where Steve Martin uh, was this character who invented a thing for your eyeglasses, uh, where you could pick your eyeglasses up with a thing that stuck on the, uh, on the, on the bridge, and you never touched the uh, earpiece, so you didn't ruin your eyeglasses, and you put them on a shelf, and they would stay, stay in place. <clears throat> well, he became a gazillionaire. Everybody loved him and so on. But after a year or two, everybody became cross-eyed. So I don't want to see technology get to the point that it makes people faster but gets people hurt. I want to see people enjoy the sport more. And if running in shoes that give you more spring and keep you from getting hurt, that comes along, I think that's great. Okay. Um, so in your personal experience with your customers and your athletes, what are, what are the kind of most common ailments or issues you see walk in the door that are related to, you know, the wrong shoes or, you know, injury related, that kind of thing? Yeah, the most, <clears throat> the injuries over time, well, I've been doing this 42 years, and over 42 years I've seen injuries in the beginning, in the early stages, I used to see stress fractures, and the shoes didn't have any cushioning, or not much cushioning. Um, I see stress fractures, I see shin splints. Okay, <clears throat> well, as, shoe, as, as more people got into the running world, and people, and this is not a derogatory term, but as less competitive people got into the sport, they weren't as, they weren't as concerned about competition <clears throat> as they were just running. Um, they weren't buying the, the shoes that manufacturers had designed for the competitive athletes. They were looking for something with more cushioning, for instance. So in the late 70s, we saw shoes get um, thicker. And when shoes got thicker, they became stiffer. So we started <clears throat> We started seeing shoes get thicker and stiffer and people having Achilles and calf problems. So then what we realized, or well, the manufacturers realized is, well, if we lift up the heel, we give more heel-to-toe drop, we can do away with that Achilles and calf problems. Now, the kicker there is that changes your other biomechanics and tells your pelvis, your pelvis and your lower back into a different position. But that kind of became the norm, and when the big manufacturers do that, then everybody else follows suit, and all of a sudden, everybody's doing the same thing. So, as shoes got thicker and stiffer and higher heel-to-toe drops, what I started seeing is more issues, 
like <clears throat> with um, piriformis, um, patellar tendonitis, upper hamstring, like at the ischial tuberosity, um, the soleus muscle, uh, plantar fasciitis. Well, as Joe knows, because Joe worked with me before, well, when I see somebody with those problems, I try to get them in a shoe that lets their foot function more efficiently, lets them go through their normal range of motion, and we can usually take care of that through. If the shoe doesn't do it by itself, I can take it back to the workbench, and I can perform mod modifications to make that happen. Very cool. Um, so what is the most common type of modification you're making for these problems nowadays? Well, in the beginning, um, in the beginning, I would perhaps just throw... Uh, more cushioning into the shoe because uh, shin splints and stress fractures and so on. As things, as things progressed, what we hear today, the term overpronation, they didn't used to make shoes for that. So one of the next modifications I used to do was to actually build a, a medial post, a plastic bridge on the medial side of the shoe uh, to prevent the foot from rolling in. Now, of course, manufacturers have copied that, and they do that. So again, as we've progressed along the route, um, and shoes have gotten thicker and, and more cushioned and so on, um, one of the things that I've seen, although we're, we're drifting back away from it now, is shoes where they were being stiff, we were having, like I say, piriformis, patella tendonitis, ischiotuberosity, soleus, iliotibia band, and so on. And so I started siping the shoe in a horizontal lines up and down the shoe, and that would let the shoe flex more naturally. Now, not, I'm not talking vertically. Um, I'm talking just horizontally. If you add grooves vertically, you can make the shoe less stable. But if you add uh, horizontal grooves in the shoe, you can then sh make the shoe flex more naturally with your foot. Now, if we can make the foot move in a forward, uh, a forward motion more efficiently, this is, a, this is a, a, a weird concept to grasp. We actually make the foot more stable because we, we, we make the shoe go through the, the forward motion quicker, less chance to encounter resistance and move medially or laterally. So th probably the, most, uh, the modification that I do typically every day is adding siping to shoes. Now, manufacturers are already are starting to do that. Um, back not that long ago, the soles on shoes, the outer sole, the part that contacts the ground, was a solid piece of rubber. And so um, you, you would obviously, siphoning it would be a drastic difference. Now, as shoes have the soles are put on in pieces, it's not as difficult. It doesn't make the shoe as stiff. makes the shoe more flexible. But still, a little bit of flexibility definitely helps the situation. Okay. Um, do you want to talk about this patent you have? What, or is that a whole can of worms or what, what's the deal with your patent? Well, that patent we're talking about was using composite fibers and composite fibers include, uh, carbon fiber, uh, graphites, uh, uh Kevlar, uh, and fiberglass. And so interesting enough, um, I was in the store. I, I always wanted to make shoes that make people you know, less prone to injury and make them faster. And a guy walks in my store one day. His name is Gordon Brown. Gordon Brown's a dang genius. Gordon is an engineer, and his specialty is composite fibers. And I had worked with composite fibers before, but I didn't have the know-how to make, make it all work. So he came to me and said he worked for a composite fiber company, and he said, do you think it has any implications? Can we use this? In Does it have anything? Can we make athletic shoes uh, and put composite fibers in them? I said, Absolutely. And he had been thinking about using the composite fibers as structural reinforcement uh, in the upper part of the shoe, the, the, the part that goes up on your foot, not underneath your sole, 
but to, to create more stability or more durability or whatever. Well, I said, well, hey, that, that makes sense. Yeah, cool. But, you know, I had a lot of other ideas with it, too, and he gave me bunches of samples of stuff he was working on. <clears throat> and um, anyway, you know, I was playing around with it, playing around with it, and eventually I took a, uh, a composite fiber of uh, what we call E2 fiberglass uh, with a certain particular epoxy, and I, uh, which was in a, uh, um, a one-strand uh, fabric. It wasn't like woven fiberglass like you might imagine when you see fiberglass, like Owens Corning insulation fiberglass. It wasn't like that. It was one strand of fiberglass that was spun around many, many times, thousands of times, and creating a platform. And so uh, and they're very, fiberglass is very, very light. But like I said about the pole vault pole, it can elongate and it can contract. And so, um, you know, I was playing around with it and thinking about making a propulsion plate, stuff like that. I did that. You know, I actually, one day I said, hey, I wonder if this stuff, if I can, th if it's thermosetable, can I take a curling iron and can I put si uh, si basically sine waves in this glass and what will it do? Well, I did that. And then I cut it into the shape of the inside of the shoe, like an insole in a shoe, and I laid it underneath the insole inside the shoe, put the insole back over the top of it, and my gosh, it was like running on springs. So, oh, this is really cool. So then, I, then you know, I was doing that for a little while, and then I, then I said, well, wait a minute. What if I put it on the outer part of the shoe? So I would peel the outer sole off the shoe, and then I would take this sine wave, basically, of glass, stick it on the bottom of the shoe. We, now, we played around with a lot of different, different types of, of, of fibers, glass, and so on. In, in different epoxies and so on. But, oh, I wish I could remember the guy that, that worked with us. But he worked on the suspension systems uh, for performance, like, like I mean, serious high-performance vehicles that were made with composite fibers. And he worked with us with some epoxies, and we actually were able to come up with a, a, a fabric that would not break. I mean, the, the problem we have when you put any composite fibers in shoes is you could get breakage. Well, he had done it in high-performance cars, so we knew it wouldn't break under the stress of a human being running. So anyway, <clears throat> so I took the outsole off a shoe, put the sine wave down there, glued the sole back on, and I was like, man, this is fantastic. This is, you know, this, plus what, what, what I found out is that it made the foam last a lot longer. Say a foam normally lasts four to 500 miles. When I stuck this glass under there, I was getting much more spring, but the foam would last, you know, thousands of miles. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. Well, then, then you know, so, you know, we worked on that. We, you know, patented or got the intellectual property trademarked and so on. And then um, I took the, 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 the glass, took the two sine waves, and I actually glued them together. Now, this is prior to, uh, you may be familiar with the company Mizuno that makes a wave uh, shoe, but this is prior to that. We took essentially that concept, and we took two opposing sine waves, and we glued them together with a, with a flexible bond. Now we actually had something really, really interesting. We could do away with foam completely in shoes, just put an upper, put this, this, this double opposing sine wave as a midsole, and then stick an outer sole on it, and we had something amazing. Now, what I did learn, though, is if the, the uh, plates were continual, we would have uh, back-of-the-leg problems, like I said, soleus and so on. So what I learned is we put these uh, double opposing sine waves on the bottom of the shoe as sections, uh, like, you know, uh, small sections. So the shoe would still flex. And, you know, we said, oh, this is fantastic. We actually applied to the U.S. Patent Office. We got back this response, like, nobody's ever done anything like this before. This is fantastic, which is not the normal comments you get from the Patent Office. Like, they, they, they gave us approval. We got our patents. Um, and, of course, we've done further uh, work and, and uh, 
you know, trademarked other intellectual property concerning this. But when you do that, it gets published and everybody sees it. Um, anybody that's in the manufacturing business will see it. And we've seen so many people copy it with the looks, with foam, with rubbers, with plastics, and so on. But nobody has actually taken glass and done it with glass, probably because they don't have that genius that we had that was able to come up with the proper epoxy to do it. But anyway, I knew back then that we really were onto something. And now that I see um, the, every manufacturer using composite fibers as a way to propel, propel the foot faster, you know, I'm like, oh, thank God, finally, finally, after all this time, it's been 25 years, finally, you know, people are understanding that this is the way to go. If you can make a shoe completely out of composite fibers, uh, the shoe essentially can, you know, you can make a point where it never breaks down. And breaking, shoes breaking down and people wearing them too long is one of the major causes of injury. Hmm. Um, that sounds like a tricky situation to get in, um, you know, you getting into the the business side of shoes and trying to take, you know, something scientific, something creative. And then, then when you go to try to monetize that idea, I mean, it sounds like a whole different world you're probably stepping into. Did you, what has been your experience, you know, from just like concept to actually something marketable? Well, yeah, there's, there's the, uh, there's the tricky thing. So back in the uh, late eighties, I tried to start my own shoe company I had a concept uh, that, coincidentally, there was another company that was also working on something similar, which I wasn't familiar with. But I was developing this concept, and I was going to start my own shoe company. I had an agent that was working uh, in Taiwan, and uh, he had done some other work for me when I was a buyer for Athletic Attic. I bought for a bunch of stores, and he would, I would give him a design. He would go to a factory, have it designed, and we would bring it in the store because we had enough stores that we could buy what we call container loads. Um, so I, I had some ideas, and I went to him, and I said, can you get this made? Now, it was a technology that nobody was up to, up to par, but nobody was up to the intellectual capacity to do it. So they have to relearn the process. So anyway, I, I, I worked for a while. Probably, you know, I was, had my regular job, but I was doing that on the side and worked for a couple years doing this. So I had a little bit of experience with trying to work in that side of things. What I quickly learned is, you can go through a lot of money really fast trying to get prototypes built and so on like that. And that you find out there are a lot of un unscrupulous people, uh, not just in our industry, but in, you know, producing stuff. If you're going to go to Taiwan or any foreign country to make project product, you know, you couldn't, you know. Anyway, I, 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 I just couldn't follow it up anymore. I didn't have the resources to do it. But coincidentally, all my ideas that I had submitted uh, eventually came out on the market under different brands. <laughs> And actually, one of the manufacturers actually came out with a shoe model with my brand name as the model of that shoe. <laughs> Are you able to say what that brand name is? Well, my brand, my brand name was Harrier. Uh -huh. uh, Harrier, which uh, in Europe, Europe, Harrier means cross-country runner. Yeah. Um, but also, at the time, uh, the jet was being developed called the Harrier, which would take straight up off of the ground and not use a runway. Uh, so mm -hmm. I thought the two... Most people didn't necessarily know Harrier as a cross-country runner, but they knew Harrier the Jet. Oh, interesting. Well, that's pretty impressive, just the fact that you're basically a one-man show, you know, um, doing research and development, product development, you know, marketing, and, you know, as opposed to that, that sounds like something that's normally done in uh, organizations where there's boardroom meetings and huge you know, acres of lab equipment and stuff like that. It's, it almost sounds unreal, the process of trying to make that happen. 
Well, yeah, <laughs> that's why it didn't happen. <laughs> but, but, but actually, so I was very lucky. Uh, again, I went to work for Athletic Attic, which was, again, the first running store chain in the United States. Eventually, we had over 200 stores. So although I didn't necessarily always buy for 200 stores, I bought for a lot of stores. And so I had buying power. I mean, even I didn't have, myself didn't have resources. I had buying power mm -hmm. to give to, uh, to try to produce shoes um, and get into the stores. And so I already had those connections. I was very lucky there. Um, and I really credit uh, Marty LaCorey and Jimmy Carnes, who started Athletic Attic, and especially giving me an opportunity in the business, got me all these connections. And honestly, I met them through my brother Dave, who had already worked for them. So I was very lucky. I mean, you know, it's all, the world all spins around by who you know. And my brother really introduced me to Marty and Jimmy, and that all got me, all of us started. And that's how all that happened. Um, it got me, you know, got all that to, to go on. and made me realize you can make this happen. If you get enough people to help you, you can make things happen. Um, so, the, again, moving into the, the, the patent with Gordon. So, with Gordon working for a major manufacturer of composite fibers, um, you know, I couldn't have done that myself, but he could provide me the composite fibers. I could go out to my garage with my tools, and I could build stuff. I could never have built the composite fibers myself, but I got the manufacturers to send me <clears throat> shoe parts that then I could glue, put my stuff in, like take, they would give me an upper, for instance. I could then glue my stuff in, put an outer sole on it. Uh, luckily, I didn't have to tear apart too many shoes to do this. I was being provided parts by the shoe manufacturers. Hmm. That's really fascinating. Um, we're probably at a good place to start wrapping up. Um, I'd like to mention to listeners that, uh, you know, the Greenville Running Company is on Instagram. That's one way to uh follow what you're doing at your store and you I gotta say you put out some really good content on your Instagram um, you're at Gville run or I guess if you search the Greenville running company here in South Carolina um, you're just uh, every day it's like a new story from you know your past or some really interesting customer that came in um, so I would really encourage people even if you're not in Greenville just to uh, follow the Greenville Running Company on Instagram. Are you, is there any other, uh, any other medium that uh, you would suggest people uh, look, look for you on? Well, we have a private Facebook page as well. And if you join our group, you can actually put up your own content on there as well. Um, so it's, it's Greenville Running Company under groups. If you go on there and, uh, and ask to join uh, the group, uh, we can put you in the group and then you, we, you, you're, you can converse with us and so on. Um, I, again, as I keep repeating, I've been at this game so long. I, I am in this game to sell shoes. Obviously, I have to sell shoes to keep the store open, that kind of thing. But I'm in this game to teach people more about running and make running more enjoyable. I mean, I, that's the critical thing to me, is if I can make people enjoy running more, if I can bring more people into the sport, if I can make running better... That's my idea. Um, so uh, he was Joe was talking about Instagram and Facebook. The posts I put up, I you know I don't always put product up there like say hey we got this new product and you need to come in and buy it. I put stuff up that hopefully teaches lessons. Uh, like uh, example, I was looking over at Joe what he was looking at right now, and I had a a, a, a USMC a Marine a gunnery sergeant come in uh, the other day and. We got to talking, and uh, sure enough, he bought shoes. But that wasn't the critical thing. 
I learned so much from him, and hopefully he learned so much from me. And if you, as we go through life, what is more important is our, our relationships and, and um, you know, what we learn and what we know is so much more important than simply uh, making a living. I mean, this is, running is, a, is, a, is to me, is critically important to make uh, the world a better place. So if somebody out there listening wants to learn something from you or wants to come to your store, obviously, um, do you know the address of your store offhand? At, uh... Yeah, I'm actually on here in Greenville, South Carolina. I am on Haywood Road, uh, which is right off Interstate 385. And I am across the street from the Haywood Mall. Um, and the actual address is 765 Haywood Road. Okay, so if someone wants to come... Um, so you can help them run faster or help, uh, have you help them with an injury or just learn more about you or learn something from you? Would you, uh, especially if they're not in Greenville, uh, is there any, what's the best way if someone wants to reach out to you and connect? Probably the best way is to send me uh, a message on Instagram or, or like I say, on, on Facebook. Uh, but also, um, you can reach me at my email address, which is runfastjeff1 at gmail.com. So R-U-N-F-A-S-T-J-E-F-F and just the digit one at gmail.com. But when I say, when you listen to that email, you say, oh, no, I'm not interested in fat, running fast. I just want to run. No, that is, that's what it's all about to me. I mean, if you're trying to run that, that first mile, that first step for the first time, that is just as important to me as a guy who's trying to break 30 minutes for a 10K or a 220 for the marathon. Um, I want to, we're, we're wrapping up here, but I want to back step just a second. Sure. Again, my like I said, one of my mentors was Al Carius, who who although he's got thirty one national titles under his belt, he he actually his motto was run for fun and personal best. And his mentor was a guy named Ted Hayden, who was the coach at the University of Chicago and coached the University of Chicago Track Club. And Ted, the University of Chicago Track Club, Ted had been a social worker in inner city Chicago, and his he had people on the track, again, like I just said, maybe trying to run their first mile. And yet he had Olympians on the track at the same time. I mean, running is a sport, unlike any other sport, where you actually can be on the track with a guy running that is an Olympian, and you maybe aren't an Olympian, but you can actually run in the same race. You can jump in the same road race. You can be in the race. You're not going to play basketball with Michael Jordan or LeBron James. But in running, you can do that. And you know what? It's a, it, I mean, you say, oh, I don't want to be embarrassed. No, it's not, you, you can really learn a lot from these people that you can mix with. That's great. All right. Well, Jeff, thanks again for doing this. And I have a feeling um, I might have to have you back to uh, unpack some more stories or get some more advice. So uh, if you're up for it, maybe you could be a semi-recurring guest. <laughs> that would be great. I, I, I love this. Uh, I've known, by the way, Joe and I have known each other for a very, very long time. Um, and there are a lot of stories. Yeah, and I'm Joe, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, we, there could be some great, great stories. There's, in the running world, if you're at any length of time, you're going to start finding some great stories. Um, I have a sign over my desk in my office that says, "Live a great story," and I, I think that's, I think that's, a, that's, that's a good motto to live by. All right, sounds good to me. All right, again, this is the Marathon Running Podcast, and until next time, uh, Jeff Milliman and I'm Joe.